politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Elon Musk loses the plot, a ceasefire in Gaza, and Biden's birthday inferno. We'll discuss all that and more on this, the 600th episode of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out today. In his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook and Jim Garrity. You're, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Donors Trust and Break Fast. More on them in a minute. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Elon Musk finds himself in a bit of hot water, famous for his relative lack of impulse control on the internet. The CEO of Twitter X, whatever we choose to call it today, SpaceX, the boring company, and a variety of other very successful commercial ventures, encountered a tweet that read the following. Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites they claim they want people to stop using against them. To which Musk replied, you have said the actual truth. The universe came down around his shoulders after that one, and that should have. This is a pretty classic anti-Semitic trope, the idea that Jews hate whites, and rather, therefore, there should be some solidarity movement among white people to coalesce against uh, the nefarious influence of the Jewish peoples with whom they are surrounded. And it dovetails a little bit with something that I think has the left on edge, because as we've seen this explosion of anti-Semitism on the left in college campuses and the streets, uh, we've seen a reciprocal phenomenon on the right between some of the right's uh, more provocative influencers some of whom are retailing pretty medieval stuff. This idea about Jews having some particular hatred towards Christians, and oddly Muslims as being Christians, Christianity's historical ally against Jewish influence. And that's coming from people like Candace Owens, the the Turning Point, Point folks, and all of them sort of are, to me, seem to be prosecuting professional jealousies. But all of it is of a piece with this very online, culturally right-leaning phenomenon. And all of a sudden, influencers, or rather advertisers, started flying away from Musk's Twitter X brand. And this was a real threat. But over the weekend, Musk flipped the script. On Monday, the social media company filed a lawsuit against the online uh, watchdog group, this right-wing wa- watchdog group called Media Matters for America. Oh, that's You're all generous, familiar Noah. With it. That's really You're... generous characterization of Listen, them. 
Listen, I'm setting the table here right. for the benefit of the audience okay. in a neutral way. Mm. Then you jump in all right. and you explain why all this framing is wrong. Right. But I'm, anyway. I'm no Jeff. I don't mean to interrupt, but that one, my, my gag reflex kicked in there. Sorry. Go ahead. Not go. at all. I'm setting the table and I expect you to correct the record. You should. But anyway, so they say Media Matters manipulated a, a lot of evidence that they provided to advertisers in order to to get them queasy and, and get them to abandon their support for Twitter X. The lawsuit alleges that the MFA accounts, MMFA accounts were, had, quote, resorted into endlessly scrolling and refreshing the feed until it found ads next to extremist posts and then manipulated that information so that it looked like the advertisers were endorsing anti-Semitism. So in my view, two things can be true here. One, MMFA, Media Matters for America, might have engaged in practices designed to show advertisers that X is a cesspit that promotes anti-Semitism. And that was uh, wrong and manipulative. And X can be a cesspit that rewards provocateurs who promote anti-Semitic tropes by monetizing their anti-social behavior. Jim, explain to me where I have erred. As you can see me chomping at the bit here. So yeah, these are two somewhat related developments, but I think each one is going to like, like it is very advantageous for Media Matters for America that everyone's talking about this Elon Musk response that was dumb and wrong. I wrote that Elon Musk screwed up in, in the morning jolt a little while ago. And like it felt like one half the readers are like, why are you always bashing Elon Musk? And the other ones are like, why are you not being tough enough on Elon Musk by simply calling it a screw up? By the way, no, that second sentence in what Elon Musk was responding after saying Jewish communities are pushing the exact same of dialectical hatred against whites. The very next sentence is, I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest poop, he didn't say poop, now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities that support flooding their country don't exactly like them too much. Now, the use of the find, very Soviet word dialectical is, is yeah, probably the, yeah. first, the first indication that you're on the wrong track here. So you, you can find Jewish Americans who support open borders or, or want less immigration enforcement or want an amnesty. I think those people are wrong. Lots of people think those people are wrong. Lots of people have said those people are wrong. But the consequence for having a wrong viewpoint or, or a, you know, a supporting a, a policy proposal we find foolish should not be that you live in fear of your life that some anti-Semitic mob is going to beat your head in. Right. And that's what we've seen on college campuses, on city streets. I mean, like, I disagree with a lot of Americans. It doesn't mean I want bad things to happen to them or for them to be beaten or to die. And this guy's message is, hey, you kind of have it coming. You guys, you supported open borders. Well, now the Muslims are marching in the streets. That's what you get. That's what you deserve. And I'm not going to care at all. And Elon Musk's response to this is, this is the absolute truth. Well, no, like, like, no, no wonder people are responding with horror to that. You know, by the way, I don't think, I, I imagine Elon Musk must have worked with many Jewish people over the course of his life. I don't think he's like a deep in the roots, uh, anti-Semite Nazi who's marching around, goose-stepping around his, his, uh, his pad or something like that. My guess is, is that Elon Musk is like a lot of people. He you know, was constantly watching Twitter and something provocative or, or catches his eye and he says, yeah. And the problem is, is that, you know, like all of us react to like dumb things all the time. The problem is Elon does it for the entire world to see. And it creates that permanent record. And you're like, Elon, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What's going through your head here? 
Um, which again, he deserves to get called out on. And when you do, like, I think all this stems from a fight he's had with the Anti-Defamation League because he said, we're doing our part to clean up anti-Semitism on Twitter. Anti-Defamation League said, no, you're not. And it has become this continuing fight between the two of them. Elon Musk believes he's being unfairly accused of anti-Semitism. And in response to this, he's like, and that's how the Jews are, which of course (laughs) makes you sound really anti-Semitic. So Elon, take a deep breath, stop, think before you respond, and chances are a lot of these problems will go away. From Media Matters for America, an institution that is basically designed to drive any conservative voice from any immediate institution whatsoever, to delegitimize any conservative, and to take anything said by anybody, and I'm sure everybody on this podcast has, for a long time, Media Matters for America had an intern or some low-level employee whose job was to watch my friend Cam Edwards' program and to find anything that Cam had said that could be remotely construed as insufficiently opposed to school shootings or something like that. And we periodically would talk directly to this intern and say, I know you feel like you're in a dark place in life right now. I know you're questioning your career choices. I know you're thinking, where did I go? But life gets better. You you don't have to spend your life like this. I don't know if that intern ever quit. But like Media Matters for America, their job is to create controversy where controversy doesn't exist. Their job is to demonize regular conservatives where they are not saying things that is worthy of being demonized or trashed. Um, and their job is to try to put pressure on other institutions to say, these conservative voices are illegitimate. So I consider Media Matters for America an absolute bad faith actor. You notice nobody is rushing to say in the face of this accusation that they basically gamed their system. Oh, Media Matters for America wouldn't do that. They're too honest. They're too noble and good to do something like that. You know, this is part of a long history of what this organization has been. Oh, by the way, and if they're upset by like, you know, the fact that I'm trashing them, maybe you shouldn't have trashed me for the past couple decades, Media Matters for America. Lo and behold, there are consequences to to your actions. So I, I look, I, I find it entirely plausible MMFA would do something like this. We'll see how it works out in the courts. Elon may have a very plausible defense in this one, that they skewed the data, they skewed the information to make it look like crazy Nazi stuff was being posted alongside these major corporate accounts and stuff like that. We'll see how this shakes out. He's got a plausible defense on that one. For his own words, no, he does not have a plausible defense and he deserves the grief he's getting. Okay, Charlie, I don't disagree with anything Jim has said. And I have no brook for MMFA, and all of us have been on the receiving end of their disreputable tactics. And I believe that they did exactly what they're accused of doing. Of course, we'll find one way or the other, but it's not hard to believe, as Jim said. At the same time, they didn't post anti-Semitic material and place it next to advertisers. They simply refreshed until they got the result they wanted. The material is out there. Material is being published out there, and there's no way to control it. And you shouldn't want to control it in an, in an environment that is as dedicated to the principle of free speech uh, as, as as Twitter is under, under Elon Musk. But is this just the risk you run? Are we, are we just simply experiencing this uptick of anti-Semitism now just because this is the world's oldest hate when Jews are exposed as vulnerable, the people who want to do them harm come out of the woodwork? Is there nothing that can be done about this phenomenon? Well, that depends what you mean. If you are asking me whether it is possible to limit the scale and intensity of anti-Semitism, then I think the answer is, of course, yes. If it's not, we should give up our day jobs. Not that any of the three of us can do it on our own, but 
if we do not believe that people arguing with each other, debating with each other, trying to persuade can have some effect on the ideological predispositions within the country, then we're totally useless. So yes, of course, it matters over time what people say and think and are taught, what the prevailing presumptions undergirding the country are, what our attitudes are in academia and business and families. There is a reason that the United States is more tolerant than most countries, and that is that it has centuries' worth of ideals that it has aspired to, if not always lived up to. If you're asking me, could any institution that has 400 million users, I believe that's how many people are on Twitter, could any institution with 400 million users, even if it spent millions of dollars in the pursuit of this goal, prevent Media Matters from being able to yield the results that it did, given what it did? The answer is no. Because there are just going to be people at the margins who say horrendous things. And if you go... Oh, but we're not talking about people on the margins. Well, hang on a minute. We are when it comes to Media Matters. We could talk about Elon Musk, and I will echo all of the criticisms that have already been advanced. But on the Media Matters question, Media Matters selectively followed certain accounts and then refreshed the page so many times that it got the ugly output from the account that it sought out at the exclusion of all other material adjacent to the ads that loaded on a randomized schedule. You can't stop that. You could have a website called nohatredofthejews.com and you would still, with 400 million users, be able to contrive that response if you did what Media Matters seems to have done. Now, I don't know if it's illegal. I don't know what the free speech implications are. I don't know enough about fraud as a civil and criminal matter to understand whether this lawsuit has merit. But if the allegations that are advanced in the lawsuit are correct, then what Media Matters did is so fundamentally dishonest that anyone in journalism who witnessed it should should be appalled. The other question, which I consider to be a completely separate one, is whether or not what Elon Musk says at various points is apparent. And the answer, of course, is yes. I don't know what is in Elon Musk's heart, but what he said there, as you pointed out, is functionally anti-Semitic. It's classically anti-Semitic. There is no good reason for him to be looking around at these accounts and agreeing, even hitting the like button. It is bizarre to me that someone of his intelligence and prominence, someone as busy as him, spends his time doing this. I don't want to diagnose him from afar, but as somebody pointed out this week, it's most likely the product of his being an autistic stoner rather than somebody who is sitting at home and actually thinking through the implications of his positions. But whatever it is, that was a gross tweet. He should not have been endorsing it. And if he is 
getting himself into hot water over and over again, purely because he doesn't have a sufficient attention span to avoid it, then that is also a character flaw that he should try to remedy. But we have to separate out these things. You are going to get the results that Media Matters got if you engage in the experiment with the parameters that it engaged in. There is no way of avoiding that. And I wish that large corporations in the United States were a little more savvy than they are or a little less captured than they are. Because Media Matters would have done that irrespective of what Elon Musk had said to that guy. Yeah, I think all that is true. And I wouldn't shed a single tear if we, if Musk successfully sued Media Matters into oblivion. And I think you're probably right about the man's impulse control and uh, general disposition towards the Jews as being friendly and not at all anti-Semitic. I agree with all that. But is there no good reason to boost the signal on scandalizing content like that? No, there is. There absolutely is. There's a monetary reason that I think Elon Musk has absolutely internalized that controversy is good for his platform. Even the stuff that could incentivize uh, violence or at least convince the the potentially violent to act kinetically on their impulses. So I don't necessarily know if the current iteration of Twitter as it exists is as hostile to these sentiments as we would like it to be. Uh, I think it's simply welcomes controversy for the sake of controversy because that increases engagement and there's no there's no outer boundary of free speech limits in this guy's imagination and this is where you go with that sort of thing let's take a minute to back out of this depressing conversation and talk to you about some other far less depressing conversations that are happening on the breakfast podcast some topics seem inaccessible to the average person economics quantum mechanics even one of the world's most familiar religions, Catholicism, can be confusing at times, even for Catholics. That's why we're excited to announce that the Breakfast Podcast has returned with its second season. Faithful listeners to the editors may remember that Breakfast was created after a long dinner when the show's host, Father Brian Gravy, told the producers about how the church imbues our everyday lives in ways most people don't even realize. The word breakfast, for example, comes from Catholics breaking the fast after morning mass. The show's creators saw the need for a podcast that is engaging and accessible to everyone, for those of any faith, or none at all. The first season explored how various foods and drinks, like champagne and sushi, have their roots in the Catholic Church, and it looked at what they can teach us about faith today. Season two focuses on famous landmarks, like how Central Park reminds us to enjoy the leisure of Sundays and what the Statue of Liberty teaches us about the true meaning of freedom. Each episode is around 20 minutes long and full of joy and insight. You can download the Breakfast Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Radio.com, or anywhere podcasts are found. Breakfast looks to entertain, enlighten, and inspire. Go ahead and check it out. So as of this recording, mere minutes ago, and it'll be confirmed, I suppose, by the time you actually hear this, there is news that an imminent ceasefire in Gaza is forthcoming, has been agreed to by all parties, according to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Jonathan Shanzer. Israel agreed to a five-day secession of hostilities in which 53 hostages will be released from Hamas's custody, 40 kids and 13 mothers. 
that is um, going to be reciprocated by Israel, which has agreed to release 350 minors and 82 women from Israeli prisons. This deal uh, looks a little bit better than a deal like we got with uh, the release of Gilad Shalit, which was something like a thousand to one uh, in terms of prisoner exchanges. But it's still very lopsided, as is often the case with these sort of exchanges. And Israelis have reason to fear deals like this because the one that produced uh, Shalit and released him from custody gave clemency to individuals who were later responsible for the 10-7 massacre. So where are we at with this ceasefire, guys? Its release of hostages is good, obviously, and it also frees Israel's hand insofar as it has had to limit some of its, some of what it would like to do on the battlefield for fear of getting these hostages caught in the crossfire. But the problem is, as always, that it allows Hamas to regroup and rearm and could make for a more difficult situation for the IDF on the ground. Charlie, what's your, uh, what's your take? Well, I hope that this is happening because the Israelis have evaluated all of the evidence and decided that whether to improve relations with the rest of the world or for hard military reasons, this is a good idea. I hope that this is not the product of international pressure or the desire to placate people who cannot be placated. I am, as you know, not a foreign policy expert, and I don't know a great deal about battlefield tactics. I do know this is a difficult situation. You've got an awful lot of hostages. You've got a tightly condensed population that is willing to use human shields. You've got a prime minister in Netanyahu who, despite his reputation as an arch-right winger, is actually something of a, a dove. I just hope this is being done for the right reasons, and I hope that, and this will sound silly, I'm sure, that the Israelis have evaluated Hamas's trustworthiness correctly. Because, of course, there is an incentive here on Hamas's side to promise and then refuse to deliver and pocket the benefits, which is however many days without an Israeli incursion. So I don't know, no. I don't I don't know what the most likely military outcome is here, but I am a little bit nervous because we have seen a really quick turnaround in international support for Israel. We've also seen some less than pleasant stereotypes being advanced. And I hope Israel is not caving to them in a way that is going to materially hurt its security in the long run. Jim, I want to get your take on the hostages, but uh, also to Charlie's point about the prospect that this is a response not to incentives from within Israel, to its citizens and its obligation to its hostages, but also pressure from the international community, because we've seen now as Israel finally entered and cleared out the Shifa hospital complex and is only now beginning to get access to the rat's nest of underground tunnels in which Hamas use, has used and is using them as a command and control node for a very long time. And we've seen now evidence from 
captured surveillance footage from that hospital that doctors, hospital workers seem pretty to be working rather closely with armed Hamas terrorists to shelter and hide the hostages that were captured on 10-7. If that has had no impact on the international environment and its approach to Hamas, what would? Well, from that conclusion, you could reasonably say nothing. <laughs> that that this <laughs> is like rather leading. They have the narrative they want, and they're not interested in changing it in light of any information that comes forward. And you could probably find, you know, uh, you know, nuclear bombs underneath that hospital, and people would still say, no, no, those are purely medical nuclear bombs. You know, they'd find some way to explain hand wave it away and paint Israel as the villainous aggressor because that's what they need to believe because they've emotionally invested so much of that into that perspective going back years. On that, on that bigger, broader question, none of us have access to the intelligence that Israel has, but the intelligence that Israel has released during the course of this conflict, the audio recordings between the guys saying, hey, I think it was our missile that hit the Al-Shifa hospital, I believe it was, various other, you know, satellite photos, drone footage, all that kind of stuff. You have to assume that Israel has a good sense of the state of the battlefield. And one of the things I found very curious about that, we've seen all of these arguments about, you know, credulous media reports who are there and who say, well, the latest news from the Gaza health authorities is that eight bazillion infants have been killed so far in this conflict and two Hamas soldiers, you know, Many of us will look at that and say, but we don't know exactly how many Hamas soldiers and, and or, you know have been killed in this conflict, but I'm betting it's a lot. Israel's been, been doing this for a long time. The conflict has been going on for a long time. They have significant technological advantages. We know there have been Israeli casualties. This is what happens in war. And also we know there are innocent Palestinian casualties. This is an inevitable consequence of war. But we haven't gotten any real numbers. One of the discrepancies, I don't want to interrupt you, I apologize, but one of the discrepancies here that is really frustrating is Hamas is releasing a lot of hostages that are children. And we would see them and we would say, those are children. Israel is releasing minors, which doesn't necessarily describe children. A lot of these are battlefield combatants, young though they may be. And they're they're institutionalized in Israel because they're a threat to Israeli security and to release them is functionally to release fighters back on the battlefield. Sorry to interrupt you, but that is just a discrepancy that is elided in the press very frequently. A lot of evil forces in this world use child soldiers. And that is a, that is something that is very hard for us as Westerners to get our head around. And so we can't, we have this like cognitive dissonance. We have a very hard time believing that somebody could be 14, 15, 16 and look, you know, those of us who are significantly older than that still think of, or those of us who are raising 14, 15, 16 year olds understand all the different ways in which these are not grown adults and that there is less moral culpability than we expect of a full grown adult. But yet when some older person puts a gun in your hand and propagandizes, propagandizes you into believing you're doing something spectacular, we have a different sense of the moral responsibility of someone who ends up becoming a child soldier. Uh, we tend to see them as being used or abused rather than willing combatants of their own adult decision-making. Anyway, the we don't know how many Hamas militant soldiers have been killed so far, but I'm guessing it's a bunch. And I'm guessing that if Israel is saying, okay, we're going to have a five-day ceasefire, I'm guessing they're feeling pretty good about what they've done so far. And I guess they've, I, I suspect that if they felt like, no, 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 
we got a whole bunch of guys, you know, cornered up up here. But if we let if we stop fighting for five days, these guys are going to sneak away to the south. I'm guessing the Israelis would not partake of this. So, you know, we know there's a tunnel system and all that stuff, but we know this mostly is under Gaza City, as far as we know. So my guess is that if Israel is agreeing to this, they feel pretty good about what they've accomplished so far. I don't think you could safely say that Hamas is destroyed, but I think you can probably say that Hamas has taken some really hard hits and has been, you know, significantly degraded from what it was on October 7th. And, you know, the other thing I think is near certain from this, and if I'm wrong, boy, would I be happy to be wrong. But history teaches us the ceasefire will be broken by Hamas. Hamas will shoot somebody. They'll say that Israel shot first. No one will be able to get any clear answers one way or the other. But, you know, history indicates that the, the recorded military strikes after a ceasefire is declared very often come from Hamas. Maybe it'll change it up. It'll be Israeli, uh, it'll be uh, Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad. But somebody on that side will start shooting at Israeli soldiers. Israeli soldiers will start shooting back. And Hamas will claim, ah, look, the Israelis broke the ceasefire. So if this lasts a whole five days, great. I wouldn't count on it. I think I'd be trying to get those hostages out as quick as possible. And the other intriguing thing will be, assuming this five-day ceasefire goes, we, we have, this meets the Biden administration's definition of a pause, wink, wink, because we're not really looking for a ceasefire. We just want a five-day timeout to, to huddle up and all that kind of stuff and get hostages out. If that occurs, then the question will then, you know, like all, you know, like the, the, a chunk of the Democratic left, mostly young people, started screaming bloody murder, quite literally, and saying, Biden, why aren't you calling for a ceasefire? And Biden getting heckled and getting that you know, uh, very, you know, anti-Israel rabbi and all kind of, say, I don't want a ceasefire, but I want to pause. You know, that is, that is Biden's half measure. I kind of sort of agree with you. Stop yelling at me. I'm on your side. I want a five-day pause. Well, if we get that five-day pause, I think your, your suspicions are correct. Nobody will be all that satisfied by it. It will then be, well, that was a good start, but we should have a full ceasefire from, from here on in. And Hamas should be left alive to fight another day and commit more massacres. It'll be interesting to see if Biden, after getting what he says he wanted, a five-day pause, then goes, well, now we need another one, you know, or some other, the, the, the goalposts get moved further. But I think if Israel is agreeing to this, I, I mean, Israel has resisted international pressure for the past seven weeks or so, which makes me think that they are I, I, very hard to believe they would suddenly knuckle under and say, oh my goodness, we've got to make the United Nations happy. All right. Well, you've kind of answered the exit question, but I will ask it formally nonetheless. Will this ceasefire produce a scintilla in iota uh, measurable by an electron microscope no. but nevertheless sympathy for the israeli position having done what they've been demanded jim no charlie no because well you said it that they would leave hamas in place and israel can't do that and so it's going to have to keep fighting until Hamas is gone. And that's going to be characterized in all the silly ways that it's been characterized. So unless it does turn into a permanent ceasefire, which it won't, then no. That's correct. The right answer is no. And Israel will be blamed when it is invariably broken by Hamas. Let's take one second now to talk to you about our second sponsor of the day, Donors Trust. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up a civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy where it's needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds and giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account 
and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors trust clients are using their funds to support charities, helping their local communities, and humanitarian relief groups helping people overseas. Many with a Donors Trust giving account simultaneously support the think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in these times of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised funds. Go to DonorsTrust.org editors for our The Ultimate Survival Guide to Charitable Giving and learn how a donor-advised fund can preserve your ability to give charitably. That's DonorsTrust.org editors. More bad news for Joe Biden over the weekend. We had a couple of polls coming out over the weekend that show Joe Biden in, shows you exactly what we've been experiencing over the last couple of weeks, months even. The political landscape is just horrendous for Joe Biden. A Harvard-Harris survey found him losing to Donald Trump by 48 to 41% with no pushing. When you push leaners to say, tell me exactly who you're going to vote for, none of this wishy-washy straddling the fence kind of thing, it's 53-47 Trump. NBC News had another poll, which found Donald Trump leading Joe Biden for the first time in that poll's history, 46 to 44%. But there is an angle. The angle, guys, is that sure, Joe Biden's brand is in the toilet, but Joe Biden's brand is not the Democratic Party's brand. If you're looking at the results of elections, the midterm elections, the off-year elections, special elections, Democrats are overperforming. And maybe it's not just because voters are making a distinction in their mind between Joe Biden and the Democratic Party broadly. Maybe it's because Joe Biden is stronger among seniors. That's the scuttlebutt that we're hearing from whole of watchers like New York Times uh, analyst Nate Cohen and Nate Silver, all of whom seem to be coming around to this notion that Democrats are becoming the party of the oldsters. And oldsters are reliable voters. They vote in off years, they vote in specials. And Donald Trump's, you know, Donald Trump's movement may be skewing a little bit younger. So this makes a lot of sense to them. Not everybody's on board. Some of it thinks some of the poll watchers think it's all noise, but maybe it's not. Charlie, are Democrats better positioned than Joe Biden's abominable poll numbers seem to suggest? Maybe. It's tough to know. I think that Republicans have a reputation problem that is going to manifest itself for a while in ways that don't always show up in top-line polling. If we go back to the starting line, I simply do not believe that Donald Trump can win a general election. Because I think that the combination of what Donald Trump's being on the ticket or being the face of the Republican Party in other circumstances does among some older voters and in the suburbs, and what Donald Trump's being on the ticket or being the face of the party does to Democratic turnout renders Donald Trump unable to win a general election. And I think we saw this in 2020. And I am not at all convinced that the astonishing unpopularity and incompetence of Joe Biden is going to be enough to change that in 2024. Certainly, there is going to be a shift away from Biden among some voters, because he's now a known quantity. 
because his shtick has been proven to be completely hollow because we can see his foreign policy and its effects. We can see his economic policy and its effects. And because he looks like he's dead. He got away with this in 2020 because we were in the midst of COVID. He won't necessarily get away with it again. But if you look at polling among people who say they somewhat disapprove and polling among people who say that Joe Biden is too old, Joe Biden still does fine when his opponent's Donald Trump. Is it beyond the realm of possibility that older voters are less likely to think that Joe Biden is too old because he's closer to them in age? and are more likely to prioritize and privilege decency, or at least relative decency, when Donald Trump is in the picture. I don't think it's at all beyond the realm of possibility that that is the case. The one caveat I have is that I don't think we can pick and choose which parts of the polling we dismiss out of hand. Some of the polls that we've seen recently suggest that Donald Trump is doing surprisingly well among African Americans and surprisingly well among young people. And whenever this is proposed by defenders of Donald Trump, the polling experts say, ha, that's not true. It's an artifact. The sample size is too small. This is because we're a year out. The question's being substituted on the fly for, okay, I, I can buy that completely. I too think it is unlikely that Donald Trump is going to do as well with young voters and with African-American voters as, say, the Harvard-Harris poll keeps suggesting that he will. But if you are skeptical of sweeping conclusions about large cohorts of voters, you might also need to apply that to older voters who have not historically shown a great enthusiasm for Joe Biden or the Democrats. So the answer, of course, is that I don't know. But intuitively, does that sound odd? No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound odd. I can absolutely see it happening. I instinctively think, though, that it is more likely, if it is true, to be a product of an environment in which Donald Trump is an option than it is to be a product that is linked in some way to Joe Biden. I think this is perhaps the wages of Donald Trump being paid. Okay, well, Jim, I'll tell you what does sound odd. Um, a reciprocal phenomenon sort of happening on the right with regard to Trump. Let's take the Harvard-Harris poll out of it because it's a, it's a friendly poll to Donald Trump has been for a while. Let's look at the Fox poll testing the 2024 primary race, the ballot test. Donald Trump performs much better with younger voters than older voters. Among voters 45 and under, he's at 69% in the Fox poll. Over 45, 58%. 65 plus, or 65 and older, 50%. The same is true of a CNN survey that was uh, released earlier this month. 18 to 49, 64% voting for Trump. 50 to 64, 60%. 65 and older, 57%. Now, we're not talking about big numbers here, but it's not nothing. And it is suggestive of an appeal that Donald Trump has to younger voters that is not necessarily present with older voters. You could all we could we could speculate about 
theories as to why this is the case all day long. It's certainly not electorally beneficial for the reasons that we've talked about before. Older voters are more likely to turn out, particularly in a primary. But I can't resist speculating about why Donald Trump is appealing to a younger cohort. And it seems intuitive to me that because he is sort of a tear the temple down around him kind of guy, that he would appeal to people who are much more interested in shaking up the status quo, which usually doesn't describe older voters. But what's your take? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think there's a lot of truth to that. One of the things that jumps out at me, look, we always have this shorthand of, ah, you know, old voters lean Republican and young voters lean Democrat. And in the broad sense, yes, but it's worth noting, like, these are like, not just far from uniform. I went back and I checked the numbers and uh, amongst voters from age 18 to 29, right? So we're talking, you know, 30 and below. In Arizona, Trump won 32% of these voters, about a third. In Georgia, Trump won 43%. So, you know, more than a third getting up towards, you know, neighborhood of half. Wisconsin, Trump won 36% of these voters, a bit more than a third. Pennsylvania, 37%. So you get a group of young people together. In that group, one third of them probably voted for Donald Trump which is not the way people perceive it. The, the coverage of this group would make you believe that they're all activists marching on college campuses and that they're all very progressive. And that's not the truth. That, that's never been the case. The other thing I kind of wonder is that there are probably reasons that, you know, I find Trump so distasteful is that from age five to 13, the president of the United States was Ronald Reagan. And that set my idea of what a president ought to be. And I thought they were always that awesome. And God was life a giant disappointment after that. You know, George H.W. Bush, you have your idea of what a president is, how they're supposed to behave, how they're supposed to address the country, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. If you were, my kids have a completely different sense of what a president is. And they've always, you know, like, you could argue that from when they were born, most of the presidents have been jokes or have been, you know, deeply flawed individuals, um, bad, you know, mediocre on their best days and an embarrassment on other days. And so the entire sense of what is normal has changed over the past generation. So older voters might look at Trump and I'm going to, I'm going to go out and we're going to exterminate the vermin. You know, people like lots of other, like, oh my God, what the hell's wrong with this guy? You know, it's this, this is very, you know, we don't you don't want the the president sounding like an exterminator. And, you know, there are lots of other people like, oh, my God, he's just, he's calling his opponents Vernon vermin. Boy, nothing bad's ever happened when a political leader says his opponents are are subhuman. What's the worst that could happen? So I think there's some of that. I think that there is this just different perceptions of what a president ought to be based on those different groups, coupled with the fact that our perception of old crotchety senior citizens are Republicans and conservatives and young, cool, hip people are Democrats and progressives always was an overgeneralization and probably muddies our thinking more than it should. Now, can I offer one more thought? And I should say, I don't think that we're going to see a massive increase in youth turnout for Donald Trump. But I wonder if some of this is being driven by the specific economic situation in which we find ourselves at the end of 2023. Two years ago, we entered the worst inflationary period in 40 years. And to fight that, the Fed has hiked interest rates over and over again, such that a 30-year fixed mortgage for someone with an average credit score is now 8.875%. In the same period, house prices have increased dramatically. If you are old, 
that is much less of a catastrophe for you. You probably already own your home. If you don't, you may not be looking to buy a home. If you are younger, that is an astonishing shift from just three years ago. You go back to the last time the economy seemed normal. In fact, seemed very good. 2019, when unemployment was the lowest it had been since 1969, interest rates were 2 or 3%. House prices were lower. It was easier to buy a car, even a second-hand car. If there is a shift in the direction that has been proposed, I wonder how much that has to do with it, that younger voters might look at this very old president and say, well, he's not really created the conditions in which I can thrive into adulthood in a way that just does not bother older people who, if you go back to the second year of Reagan's presidency, when inflation was shockingly bad and unemployment was up and interest rates were <laughs> in, the, in the double digits, actually were less upset about the economy than were younger and middle-aged people because its consequences hit them in different ways. That's an ominous observation for Democratic prospects if that were to hold into next year because interest rates aren't coming down and property prices don't seem to be following either. So here's an exit question for you that I don't actually know the answer to. I'm of two minds on this one. I look at the polls. And I see Donald Trump doing roughly about as well as he did in 2016, 2020, about 46, 47 percent, sometimes 48, 49 even, depending on the ballot test. But still generally along those lines, he's doing so much better relative to Joe Biden, who's fallen through the floor. In order for Donald Trump to return him to the White House, be restored to the White House, he's got to do one of two things, either win back voters who have voted against him, which is a difficult psychological hurdle to overcome or remake the electorate similar to what he did in 2016. And I find that to be unlikely too, given the, given the appearance, likely appearance of people like Cornell West and RFK Jr. on the ballot, who are probably likely to appeal to voters who are just dissatisfied with the political process more than a former president would be. But I could talk myself into the alternative too and say that he's doing better because there are some polls that show him approaching 50%. So the question to you guys is, Jim, is Donald Trump doing better or worse than he was in 2016, 2020? Uh, I think we should use those as two separate measuring sticks because Trump won in 2016 and he Fair lost enough. in 2020. I do think we're in the ballpark of 2016. I, 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 I thought it was very interesting when David Axelrod, the subject of Maureen Dowd's column this past weekend, Axelrod has been trying to sound the alarm for quite a while now and basically saying that that Biden is too old and the electorate feels that way and that he's not a safe bet. And in Maureen Dowd's column, he said he's probably less than 50-50 to beat Trump, which is like the sort of like that's that's activate the drudge siren, you know, flashing giant neon sign, danger, Will Robinson, danger. And one of the things he said is that I remember that they're counting on Trump's repulsive aspects. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I mean, you know, the, the, the negativity about Trump to do their job for them. And I remember the Hillary Clinton saying, campaign saying the same thing in 2016. And so, again, I'm not predicting Trump is going to win. I think one factor is that like, I'm very curious as to how many voters have actually heard Trump speak at length recently. My guess is not many. Um, unless you go out and deliberately try to watch some of Trump's remarks at Mar-a-Lago or something like that. Like, you probably aren't hearing it. Um, he's not appearing in the Republican debates. 
And Trump sounds like he only sounded crazy, but now he sounds crazy and erratic and forgetful. And one, I think that will neutralize the the issue of Biden's age significantly if like if if Trump goes out there and he keeps referring to President Obama and was it uh, who was it, Erdogan is the leader of no he said that uh, Orban is the leader of Turkey and and all kinds of stuff like that. So I think as voters, and of course the upcoming trials, as voters see more of Trump, I think they will be reminded of why they didn't like Trump in 2020. And I think that would probably work for Biden for a bit. But in the end, like Biden had a picture of himself with his birthday cake yesterday. Apparently they, somebody idiot tried to put 81 candles on that cake and it looked like a fire hazard. <laughs> it looked like the, the roof of the White House was going to go on fire from this. And like- it like, was a there, giant flaming metaphor. Can nobody in the why is nobody in the White House acknowledging this? It was obviously, you know, like I saw someone tweet that White House staff had presented Joe Biden with his foreign policy. <laughs> yeah. Look, for once we couldn't blame Jamal Bowman for hitting the fire alarm. Perfectly reasonable concern in that circumstance. Look, you know, Biden is really, really old. And like 76% of Americans think that. This is not even like like Biden is a uniter. There's a broad bipartisan consensus that Joe Biden is too old. About a third of Americans think he's going to live to see the end of a second term. Like, and the entire Democratic ad is, we can spin this. We can, we can, you know, uh, uh, smoke and mirrors our way through this. And you can't. And you're starting to see, you know, the David Ignatiuses and there's some columnists in the Financial Times today is like, look, Democrats, either get rid of Biden or replace Kamala Harris. Somebody's got to go. Something's got to change because this is not a safe bet to beat Donald Trump. And I think that's when you have two really disliked, you know, major candidates. One, I think people will be shopping around for third party candidates, whether it's RFK, whether it's Cornell West, Joe Manchin or somebody jumps in. I think they'll be real interested in it. I think you get something akin to H. Ross Perot, either 96 or 92. And I think in that scenario, a whole bunch of states become anybody's to win because the electorate is split more ways than the usual two. There are a few things that Americans agree on, like they agree on the need for some other alternative to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's a two thirds proposition. Charlie, you know, Jim's right. We expect to see a lot more of Donald Trump when he becomes the general election nominee, if he becomes the the GOP's presidential nominee. But then the press is also besotted with this idea that they can prevent a Trump presidency by just depriving him of oxygen. He did this Univision interview and there was a explosion of hostility to the idea that it was a friendly interview and didn't just bombard him with hostility constantly. So there's these competing impulses in the press. But anyway, to the original question, he is doing better or worse than he was in let's say 2020. I should say that I think that depriving Donald Trump of oxygen might be worth two or three points to him. That would be the way to get him elected, in my estimation. You just don't tell the public what it is that he says at any given point. It would help. So I think he's doing better than he was in 2020 and worse than he was in 2016. In 2016, you had a known quantity, Hillary Clinton, who was widely disliked. And then you had Donald Trump, who was known in the sense that he was famous and did develop a reputation, but hadn't been president and could act as a blank sheet of paper onto which voters might project their wishes. In 2020, you had the opposite. You had Donald Trump fatigue. It was so tiring and tiresome having him as president. And then Joe Biden, who, although he'd been in Washington for a long time, seemed a relatively unknown quantity, hid in his basement, 
allowed himself to be seen as a vessel of normalcy and decency. Well, now we have public disdain towards both candidates. That doesn't help Trump because Trump is widely disliked and is toxic among many key voting blocs. But Biden can't play the same game he did in 2020. He can't say, I will be a steady hand on the tiller. I will be a neutral steward, both because he's not a steady hand. Quite literally, he has unsteady hands. And because he has proven himself to be captured by progressive interests. And he has presided over in most senses and caused in limited sentences a whole bunch of problems for which he is blamed. I think, therefore, Trump is stronger than he was in 2020, weaker than he was in 2016, certainly strong enough to win given the right circumstances, but unlikely to do so nevertheless. All of that makes a lot of sense. And all of it is very important for you to know, which is why it's time for a plug for NR+. Plus which is your way around our metered paywall. We know what you're doing. You're opening up the incognito windows. You're stealing your mom's password. It's not worth it. It's a whole lot of effort for a minimal benefit because you could just con contribute just a couple of bucks to NR Plus and have access to our whole library of astute commentators. And you will get news and information like that at your fingertips. It is absolutely worth it. I recommend highly that you consider subscribing. But now it's time for something a little less heavy than war, death, and a horrific political status quo. Uh, Charlie, you were recently watching yet another film, a fun family film with your little ones. Ghostbusters Afterlife, which was terrific. Felt as if it was most inspired by Stranger Things, and not just because it shares one of the stars with Stranger Things, but it had that well, you know what it had? It was completely apolitical. It was fun. It had that 1980s, 90s style innocence about it. It was original. It didn't just remake the first two Ghostbusters movies. Confession, I haven't seen the all-female remake. And not as much. <laughs> yeah. And I hope they make another one. In fact, I think they, they are, are making another you one. You haven't seen the trailer? Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen the trailer, but I, I did see that they were making another one. This is a, a good movie. This is the sort of movie I could imagine having seen when I was a kid. Jim, you're you're looking at me. I can't tell whether you agree because you've seen it oh. or you saw it and hated it. No, no, I completely agree. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I think what's like I, I, I used to right before we started taping, I joked, ah, the editor's podcast where you go to get reviews from films that came out a year or two ago. Yeah. But at the same time, I actually <laughs> bet that there are a lot of people who like need stuff like that because parents don't go out to the to the movie theaters on a regular basis and it costs, you know, some ungodly amount of money to take your movie to your kids to the theater. That probably there are a bunch of people who are flipping around their streaming service like what what's on? What's new these days? What's what 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 oh that, was that one good? So like Charlie, you actually are providing a, a useful service here. It was very good except that Spectral Harold Ramis was a little a little odd. It man, was odd, but dead. it was moving in its own way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that was Harold Ramis's ghost. They cast him for that movie. That's, you know. Well, at least he's, yeah, they're getting residuals to the family still, which is very valuable. Jim, you are preparing for the annual Thanksgiving feast 
Yes, and uh, once again, I will ask everyone, if you happen to be on Interstate 95 heading north between Authenticity Woods, Fairfax County, Virginia, and the greater Bucks County area on Wednesday, get out of the left lane. I'm the one who's trying to come through there. It's going to be an absolute nightmare. It's always an absolute nightmare. I also have noticed, by the way, have you noticed, like, so we are taping this on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. A whole bunch of people have already scattered Rich is actually sick, but like you know, all kinds of people actually begin their travel today. Have you noticed the week of Thanksgiving keeps getting shorter and shorter? It's basically amounted to like Monday and a half of getting anything done. We tape this and like no one's going to be returning phone calls. Everybody's going to be halfway out of there. Already people are probably hitting the roads on Interstate 95. But anyway, I just, my, my other observation is just like, man, some comedian had said, man, when I was a kid, I used to hate Thanksgiving because it didn't have any presents. And now that I'm an adult and a parent, I love Thanksgiving because it doesn't have any presents. Have any presents? It is just, you know, you get up in the morning. I'll be up at my in-laws. My mother-in-law will already start cooking the feast, and it'll be fantastic. You kind of mosey around the kitchen. You pick up some stuff, but you don't need to eat that much because you know the big meal's coming. You got the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and yes, I realize it's all you know now diverse musical stances and all stuff. But you still get to see Charlie Brown balloons. You still get to see all kind of stuff. They keep having NBC sitcom stars who randomly happen to be in the audience that day, um, and then you watch that. And then with the, you know, it's always the Detroit Lions against a team that is not the Detroit Lions that usually wins, but Detroit's good this year. We usually have our meals served sometime around the Dallas Cowboys game, so I end up seeing less of that. And then there's a Thursday night game, and it's just you know the you know like it's it's chilly, but it's not frigid. The food is good. The house just smells fantastic, and it just is like there, there's no pressure. There's no oh, do we get gifts present? Oh, are the kids do the kids like the present? Uh, you know, it's just enjoy yourself. And then the next day, we can go and watch the Jets lose to the Dolphins in person in probably miserable weather. I 100% endorse that take. I'm just to, you know, the editors is a soap opera. You guys tune in every week to find out what's going on in our lives. I know. So just to update you, the 2005 GMC Yukon Denali is dead. The The brake lines were busted and to repair it would be a lot more than the car is worth. And there's also a fuel line that's rusted out and blah, blah, blah. The whole thing was just not worth it. So had to bite the bullet, pick up a new vehicle. And I am back in a Ford Explorer, the household tank. And there's a bit of nostalgia for that for me because my very first car ever was a 1994 giant neon green Ford Explorer. So I am back in my comfort zone. Finally, let's do some editor's picks. Charlie, what do you got? I'm going to take our editorial, Harry Reid's Judiciary, a much-deserved look back at the fateful decision taken by the then Senate Majority Leader to abolish the filibuster for judicial nominations, except Supreme Court nominees, back in 2013 on the unbelievably self-serving and naive assumption that that particular caveat would hold. We saw some similar naivety this year when it came to the filibuster. Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. This editorial has within it a key line this is old Burkean wisdom. Drastic changes to the system may produce results you didn't anticipate and won't like. Those in power should not tear down restraints they might need later when out of power. In blunter terms, paraphrasing a saltier expression, mess around and find out. Well, Harry Reid did mess around. He did find out. It was anticipated by pretty much everyone, including National Review 10 years ago. And I think it is thoroughly deserved that we have an anniversary editorial. 
Very good piece. Jim, what's your pick? So listeners may pick up that every now and then I tease Charlie. Yes, that is my envy at the success of his favorite football team coming out in me. But I'm going to pick Charlie's most recent, one of his most recent pieces. CNN won't accept that Americans are actually worried about shoplifting. Because the difference between Charlie and me is that like, I will see some mainstream media journalist saying, stuffing stu- saying something stupid and just kind of roll my eyes and move on. And Charlie will pause and say, here's why this is stupid. And it is a really good piece pointing to CNN's Nathaniel Meyerson, who lamented the anxiety over shoplifting is really a stand-in for larger concerns of cultural, economic, or political changes. And Charlie's like, no, this is because people don't like shoplifting. And it's just like, there are a lot of things, there's a lot of nonsense that get kind of pumped out into our media atmosphere. And it kind of is so pervasive that it's easy to like, get used to it or overlook it or something. And Charlie's like, no, stop. standing up the word history yelling, stop. And saying, no, people are worried about shoplifting because it's shoplifting, not because it's deeper racial anxieties or any such nonsense like that. Once again, well done, Charlie. Also a very good piece. My pick is going to be from author and AEI scholar Jay Cost, whose piece is Don't Forget the Founding Fathers. It is a response to Michael Lind writing in Compact, who argues that the reverence and admiration for the founders among conservatives is a cultish outlook, and Jay you know, dismantles that rather facile observation, in my view, because we're consulting the founders on their wisdom on the Constitution, which they wrote, um, which makes a whole lot of sense. It's also valuable, I think, to have this piece in Compact Magazine, which is run and managed by my friend and former colleague, Saurabh Amari, who describes himself as a new dealer, and it's nice to see new dealers acknowledge that the Constitution is in fact an obstacle to what they want to achieve. That is going to do it for us. You have been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Shara Shudi, who's not here today, actually. It has been produced by the inestimably talented Charles C.W. Cook who can talk and do audio at the same time. It's quite amazing. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. And thank you to our advertisers, Donors Trust, and Breakfast. And especially, thanks to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.